0: invite you to hear his voice through his word as as we come to another sunday morning that time when we bow before the preaching of his word as i endeavor to weave both gladness with gravity it's great gladness for those of us that know and love christ we think of heaven we think of the glory of christ the glory of god in the face of christ and yet it's a time of great gravity Because the opposite of heaven is hell. And literally, as I come before you, I never forget that the destiny of the souls of sinners literally hangs in the balance. But this morning, we come once again to the word of God as we go verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 22 this morning, verses 23 through 33, as we. Understand more about resurrection glory. May I remind you before we look at the text of a few things and prepare your heart as we get ready to really unpack this text and apply it to our life. This would be Wednesday of the Passion Week before Jesus is crucified, a day after driving the merchants from the temple, and Jesus has successfully humiliated the Pharisees and the Herodians as they have desperately tried to trap him, to try to ensnare him so that Rome would perceive him as an insurrectionist or perhaps get him to say something that would turn the multitude against him. So where the Pharisees and the Herodians have failed, now the Sadducees decide to take up their opportunity, to take their shot, if you will. And in this text, We witness once again the machinations of religious fools, religious people that are blinded by unbelief, people that are consumed with pride. And like so many religious experts and religious scholars today, they are literally too ignorant to know that they're ignorant. But also today we're going to learn about what happens to us when we die. For many of you, this will be review. Maybe for some of you, it will be new. But whenever I think about it, it stirs my heart with great joy. And again, before we look at the text, may I get you to think with me a little bit. You know, there are many theories out there about life after death. Most people, I don't know if it's most people, but certainly many people believe that we just cease to exist. We just no longer are alive and we just die out literally forever. But, you know, most of the ancient cultures believed in an afterlife. The ancient uh, Egyptians believed that there was an afterlife. You can look in the tombs of the ancient pharaohs and you will find that they had various items buried with them to help them cross over into the next life. I've spent a lot of time in my life with the American Indians and I know much of their culture and certainly even to this day, many of them will bury various items with their dead to help them in the next life. I read that the ancient Norsemen would bury a horse with the deceased to help them be able to ride into the next life. And even Eskimo children in Greenland will bury a dog with their child. So that that dog can be a guide through the cold wasteland of death. But certainly one of the most popular positions on life after death is that of reincarnation. It literally dominates the Hollywood theme. Today, I discovered that approximately 30 million Americans, that's one in four, believe in reincarnation. By the way, the word reincarnation literally means to come again in the flesh. The process of reincarnation, and by the way, I'm not going to preach on this, but I do want you to understand where many people come from. The process of reincarnation is one that believes that we go through continual rebirths in human bodies, and allegedly this continues until the soul has reached a state of perfection. And then eventually we somehow are merged back with our source, which is God The great universal soul. You can kind of hear the Twilight Zone music in the background when I say that. And of course, central to this belief is that one's white lot in life is based on the law of karma. They would say that this law is one that would uh, mean that if bad things happen in one's life, that's the outworking of bad karma, and if if good things happen in a person's life, that's the outworking of of good karma. And karma literally refers to a debt that that a soul accumulates because of good or bad actions committed during their life or in their past life. And if one accumulates good karma by performing good actions, then they're going to be reincarnated in a desirable state. And, of course, if you do bad, it's going to be just the opposite. Now, karma is supposed to rid humanity of all of its selfish desires. And certainly you can go to the great expert Shirley MacLaine in her book, out on a limb where she tells us quote reincarnation is like show business you just keep doing it until you get it right now i find it interesting that they don't believe that you can really remember what it was that you did in your former life so it leads me to ask why would one be punished for something that they can't remember in their previous life but uh, and also if the purpose of karma is to rid humanity of selfish desires, I'd like to see some of the evidence because it would appear that after all of the millennia of people being reincarnated, things are not getting better, but they're getting worse. Well, be that as it may, if you think of reincarnation, especially even in India, the birthplace of reincarnation, It's hard for me to understand the widespread poverty and starvation and disease and horrible suffering and so on, if any of this is true. Well, this belief, I believe, is as absurd as it is false. But we would also ask, what about the Jews? What about the ancient Jews in the Bible? Did they believe in life after death? Did they believe in a resurrection? And the answer is, absolutely. In Hebrews 11, In verse 10, we are reminded that Abraham looked forward to the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And in verse 19, it says that he considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. And, you know, even before Abraham, Job said in Job 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I will see God. Whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes shall see and not another. Even David, the psalmist, tells us in Psalm 16, beginning in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad, he said, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy holy one to undergo, undergo decay. And in chapter 49, verse 15 of the Psalms, we read, But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Even the prophet Hosea in Hosea 6, verses 1 and 2, described how that we will live before him someday. And the prophet Daniel in Daniel 12 and verse 2 made it abundantly clear when he said that many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So indeed, there will be a resurrection of both the righteous as well as the wicked. Even Ezekiel alluded to the same thing in his visions of vision of the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. So the ancient worshipers of the true God believed in a bodily resurrection. And dear friends, this is a life giving hope that has sustained All saints throughout redemptive history. So what does God have in store for those who are united to him in faith in Christ? And today we want to take a little excursion into scripture and learn about the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Learn about our glorified bodies. When is this going to happen? What will our bodies be like? And some of those things. But first of all, we want to go to the text and look at this fascinating scene in the temple court. Let's read together here, beginning in verse 23. Matthew 22, verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us and the first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh and last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this. They were astonished at his teachings. Now, Friends, let me give you a little background on the Sadducees. Remember now, there was great animosity between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But like all religionists that hate the truth, they will always be galvanized together against the truth. And the Sadducees were certainly no different, nor are the Pharisees when it comes to hating the truth. The Sadducees were the wealthy aristocrats of the Jews. They were the aristocratic elite of Judaism. In reading about them, I discovered that they were considered to be loud and crude in mannerism. They maintained a condescending attitude towards those that they would perceive to be their subordinates, those that they considered inferior to them. My, isn't that a surprise if you've ever been around people that considered themselves the aristocratic elite, you will experience that very thing. They traced their name back to Solomon's priest, Zadok, who came, who became the father of the Jerusalem priesthood and believing that the priesthood, therefore, should be inherited. The Sadducees literally controlled the priesthood in the temple in Jerusalem. And like all false leaders, false teachers, false religionists, they were really in it for the power and for the money. They were, you might say, the temple mafia. They had a religious racket going on. They operated all the concessions. This is why, by the way, they were so mad at Jesus, because the day before he had really stirred up a hornet's nest by running all the money changers out of the temple. So Jesus was seriously bad for business for the Sadducees. They literally had a legalized extortion racket going on where they would require worship worshipers to buy sacrificial animals for them, and of course they charged an exorbitant rate, and they also overcharged them for exchanging money and so on. Now politically they, the Sadducees were very pro Roman. Naturally so, they supported the status quo that kept them in power. And very often you'll find false religion being very closely related to the political structure of the day. And even Rome used the Sadducees to control the people, not just religiously, but politically. They even gave the Sadducees the temple police and some limited authority. And by the way, most of the Jews hated them. Now, it's important for you to understand, too, that the Sadducees considered themselves to be strict interpreters, literally literists of, I should say, literalists of the Pentateuch. In other words, they would interpret it literally, the Pentateuch being the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, of course, they didn't live up to the command that would say to love the Lord, their God with all their heart, mind, soul and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. But everything else they pretty well held to. So they considered the remainder of the Old Testament little more than commentary on the Pentateuch. Now, it's really funny, and this is important for you to understand the context here. Otherwise, this passage of Scripture will make little sense to you. The Sadducees thought that the Pharisees were liberal hypocrites because Of all of the spiritual, shall we say, exegetical gymnastics that the Pharisees would use when it came to interpreting the law, shall we say, reinterpreting the law. To accommodate their own interests. And if you read the, 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 the history of the Pharisees, you will see that in fact they would do that quite often. They would sometimes interpret something figuratively so that they could twist it a little bit or they might add some unique twist to it and make it a, a law that was more palatable and so on. And the Sadducees really opposed them for doing those shenanigans. But if you study the Sadducees, you'll see they did the same thing. So this is what was going on between them. But isn't it interesting that they come together now to attack Jesus? Now, regarding the resurrection, since Moses had no explicit teaching on life after death or on the resurrection, the Sadducees, believing solely in the the first five books of the Old Testament, rejected the whole notion entirely. There's no such thing as life after death. There's no resurrection and so on. So, therefore, they denied all future rewards, all future punishments, believing that the soul just merely dies with the body. They also, by the way, denied the existence of of the supernatural when it came to angels and demons. And, of course, these doctrinal positions put them at odds with the Pharisees and the rest of the people, not that they really cared. So, with this in mind we examine their their malicious little escapade as they foolishly endeavor to embarrass the Son of God. And I've given you a very simple outline. I try to do this so you have something to hang these concepts upon. The first point of the outline will be a Gordian knot tied. Now, let me explain that, because some of you may not know what a Gordian knot is. I'm borrowing the expression from the old story of Gordius, King of ancient Phrygia, who, according to the prophecy of that day, tied a knot that no one could untie except the one that they believed would be destined to rule Asia. And, of course, as the story goes, Alexander the Great came along and he cut the knot and became the ruler. But that phrase came to symbolize an intricate or a complex tangled conundrum or or a riddle or, or a puzzle, something that is seemingly impossible to answer. So first of all, we're going to see the Gordian knot tied. And secondly, we're going to see the Gordian knot untied as Jesus does. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the glories of our bodily resurrection. So first of all, let's think about how they tried to tie this knot in verses 23 through 28. Again, they come to the to Jesus Verse 24, they uh, in a very duplicitous way, they say, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. And indeed, that's what Deuteronomy 25, verse five tells us. Now, they say to him, and here's the knot: there were seven brothers with us and the first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. Now, before we see how Jesus unties the knot, let me remind you that it's common practice among heretics to twist and torture scripture to somehow get it to say something they want it to say. Liberal theologians have been doing this for years they want to explain away, for example, the earth being created in six 24 hour period of time, uh, the six literal days. They explain away the worldwide flood. They do all kinds of uh, things like this. And we we see that they basically would say that the Bible is filled with myths. Well, this is the same type of mentality going on here with the Sadducees to somehow take a text and twist it to their own advantage. And anyone who despises the truth because it doesn't fit their agenda or doesn't fit their culture will inevitably trifle with the truth. And this is what we see happen. In fact, I would submit to you that all religious heresies are birthed in the womb of some sinful bias. So people are desperate to come up with some theology, some doctrinal position that fits their personal agenda. We've seen this, for example, in the mystics, people that are slaves to their emotions rather than their mind, like to come up with truth through subjective experience, through intuition. They're always feeling things rather than coming up with truth through rational principles of hermeneutics, the science and art of biblical interpretation. And we see the result of that, for example, in the charismatic and the Pentecostal movements, which is basically a wasteland of personal visions and personal miracles and revelations, everything from the bizarre to the ludicrous. I've seen this, especially in the study of eschatology, the study of the end times. People have some kind of a personal bias, some kind of an agenda. And so they look at the scripture through that bias, and they interpret the scripture accordingly. For example, I've seen people that hate Jews. They're anti-Semitic, so they want to come up with an eschatology that eliminates God's working with the Jews, that the church is now spiritual Israel, and so on. When I lived in California, I came across a lot of survivalists. You'll see that a lot more out west than you will here. And they were always captivated by the sensational and they loved the the post-tribulational type of a of an eschatology because they love to stockpile food and arm themselves and they want to go through the tribulation so they can do all of this stuff. And so they prefer that particular interpretation of scripture or people that are political activists or they are into social reform. They love dominion theology. They love the post millennial position where basically we've got to elect enough, you know, Christians and the church is going to come along and basically um, renovate the world itself and then eventually hand this over to Christ, the king. And so you have the same type of mentality even in our day. Well, the Sadducees certainly had their agenda and that was to stay in power. Do whatever it takes to make the money, even if it means being a religious phony. Now, with such a philosophy of life, being that manipulative, and that deceptive, and that duplicitous, you certainly would not want to hold to a doctrine that believes in an afterlife. Because, my friends, if you want no accountability in this life, you certainly don't want any accountability in the next. So, they denied the resurrection. That way you can live for today with no worries after death. And this is the perfect theology for a worldly hedonist. This, by the way, is the playboy mentality of our day. So if you want no accountability in this life, just eliminate the next life and you've got it made. So this was their story and they were sticking to it. So they present this Gordian knot to Jesus, thinking it would only... Uh, not only vindicate their denial of future resurrection, but they were also in hopes that it would discredit Jesus. But somehow after that question, he would just kind of shrug his shoulders and hold up his hands and shake his head and and finally just kind of walk away in utter humiliation. Now, where on earth did they get this particular theological position? Well, knowing that Jesus respected Moses, And respected the law, they appealed to Moses as the highest authority. We see that in verse 24 and verse 24 takes us back to Deuteronomy 25 verses five and six, where there is a discussion there of what is called leveret marriages from the Latin lever, which means husband's brother. And in that text, if we were to go there, we would see that there is a provision that God gives us that basically says if a man dies childless, his unmarried brother is to take his widow and marry her and hopefully bear a child and thus provide an heir, perpetuating the brother's name amongst the covenant people and so on. By the way, God even honored this prior to Moses. We see in Genesis 38 in the story, you might recall, of, of Judah's uh, wicked son, Ur. Er. Remember when the Lord killed him and Judah asked Onan, his brother, to uh, uh, the, uh, brother, the unmarried brother, his unmarried son, the brother-in-law, shall I say, to take his brother's place. And it's also interesting that this Leveret law was also the motivating force that caused uh, Boaz to marry Ruth after her husband, Melon had died. You read about that in, in Ruth 4. So here's how it goes. The husband dies, according to the Sadducees, and six unma- unmarried brothers successfully take their turn in marrying this woman. And they finally, they all die. And then Finally, she dies. Now, now, folks, I have to say that when I think about this, if I were about number three or four in that list, I think I would get very suspicious of this woman. And I would probably find somebody and marry her real quick so that I would be excluded from this little deal. But be that as it may, this is the story that they give to Jesus. And again, now they're trying to prove the absurdity of the resurrection, so they ask, whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Well, that's the Gordian knot tied. But look what Jesus does in untying it. In verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures." Now, let's stop there. The word mistaken means in the original language to, to wander off, to go off course. And here in this context, it means that you have drifted away from the truth. By the way, this is always the problem of false teachers. They wander off on their own rather than staying on course with the truth. They make up their own stuff. And as a result, they're filled with all kinds of homespun interpretations where they they torture texts and and try to get them to fit their own personal preferences. You turn on the television set and you'll see this constantly in many television preachers. People with overactive imaginations they are seeing visions and hearing things and. Many times it even includes doctrines of demons, as Paul warned us, and you end up with with mind boggling ignorance that leads other people astray. In fact, Jude describes these false teachers in Jude 13 as wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Now. Not only did the Sadducees not understand the scriptures, but according to verse twenty nine, they didn't understand the power of God. So, boy, this was a double whammy for them. Jesus has just publicly accused these self-styled spiritual gurus of being not only ignorant of scripture, but being strangers to the power of God. Now, here's why. In verse thirty, Jesus says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. By the way, that last phrase, angels in heaven, was also a not-so-subtle jab at their erroneous denial of angelic beings. Now, here's the point. Obviously, Jesus is saying there's going to be a resurrection. I'm going to begin with that premise. By the way, Luke's Gospel tells us in Luke 20 and verse 36 that Jesus also stated that as resurrected saints, we are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But, Jesus is saying, unlike our human existence here on earth, when we're in heaven, there will be no sexual relationships. There's no procreation. There's no death. There will be no births. We will just have an eternally glorious spiritual existence like the angels in heaven. In fact, as we study scripture, we, we see that someday we will experience A supernatural intimacy with one another, with the angels, and certainly with the triune God. And we'll talk more about this in a moment. In effect, so what Jesus is saying is that Sadducees, your ridiculous scenario, if in fact if if it were true, the nature of the resurrection would completely untie this knot. And so Jesus goes on to silence his proud and arrogant opponents in verse 31. He says, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, this is very important for you to see. Remember now, they only buy things, shall we say, that's found in the Pentateuch. And literally what he's saying here is you silly fools. You think there is no proof of the resurrection in the Pentateuch? I'm going to give you a proof. By the way, Luke adds that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. So Jesus is going to prove it from the Pentateuch. And what does Jesus do? Well, he points them to the fact I catch this, that repeatedly God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Literally, Jesus now is giving them what we would call an exegetical argument to prove his point. You see, in the original language in the Hebrew, we would see that the term I am is in what we call the emphatic present tense, which means that the stated action remains in a continuous progress. And so he's saying here that God is the covenant making and the covenant keeping God and his promises did not die with the death of the patriarchs. It continues on. You see, Jesus is saying God did not cease to be their God, which presupposes that they do not cease to exist. Because how could God still continue to be the great I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, if they no longer existed? That's the point. In fact, he is still intimately involved in their lives as he is intimately involved in the lives of all those who have gone on before us and whose souls are currently with the Lord. You see, their souls now abide with him in sinless perfection. Thus, verse 32, the end of it, he says he is not the God of the he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, friends, think about this. Think of all the Old Testament saints who have died. All the Old Testament saints. What a tragedy if when they died, they just no longer existed. They just disappeared. Think of this. All of their hopes of a promised blessing would then have been, it would have been in vain. What a colossal and cruel hoax from a deceptive God to promise them all these things. But when they died and it didn't happen, oh, that's it. It's all over. But we know that's not true. So many passages of Scripture attest to that. In Hebrews 11, for example, beginning in verse 13, we read all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Then it goes on to say they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Child of God, let this sink in again. Our God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, on yet another note, unfortunately, the Sadducees were like many people of today, Who would deny a bodily resurrection. Now, here's why. Not just because they didn't see it in the Pentateuch, but because common sense would tell you that it would be impossible for God to somehow reconstruct bodies that have been burned to ashes or have been devoured by wild animals or or have decayed over thousands of years. Well, as Jesus is saying here, you're mistaken Not only because you don't understand Scripture, but you don't understand the power of God. Now, friends, think of this. What a tragic denial of the power of God. The God of the Bible, who is the creator, the sustainer, and the consummator of all things. The God of the Bible, who, with a word, spoke all things into existence. Do you mean to tell me that you honestly think that he couldn't pull that off in resurrecting a body? You know, I have to laugh when we now understand DNA. I say we understand it. I understand basically what it is. I couldn't explain it to you like maybe some of you could. But we understand that certainly this is God's blueprint for every living thing. God created DNA. Now, let me put it to you in a bit of a facetious way. And I don't mean to be blasphemous in in any way. But dear friends, do you really think that God didn't keep a copy of that on file? Do you really think that the one who created the DNA in the first place has now lost it forever and couldn't reconstruct that? Again, he is the omniscient, omnipotent creator. And that's what Jesus is saying. You don't understand the power of God. Well, of course they didn't. They didn't know God. They were strangers to God. They were religious externalists, hypocrites. Well, Jesus untied the Gordian knot of the Sadducees. In verse 33, we read that when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. By the way, you might wonder what other people said. Well, Luke 20 and verse 39 says that some of the scribes answered him and said, teacher, you had spoken well. Well, what about the Sadducees? What they say? Well, in verse 40 of Luke 30. Obviously, we see that they remain entrenched in their unbelief because, again, many heretics, most heretics, they they, they don't care about the truth. And so in verse 40 of Luke 20, it says they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Well, I can understand why. And again, this is typical of heretics. They refuse to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the truth, much less yield to it because they are self-willed. And they're self-absorbed. By the way, this is why Paul said in Titus 3.10 that we are to reject a factious man. A uh, Literally, the word in the Greek means means a heretic. You have to reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. You, you don't dialogue with these people. You don't debate them. You reject them after you've warned them of the truth. Now, we cannot leave this fascinating text this incredible scenario without somehow casting off into the depths of what it means to be resurrected I want to talk to you for a few more minutes about the glories of our bodily resurrection now first of all may I remind you uh, and by the way I'm going to go through several passages of scripture we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 if you want to turn there but while you're turning there Uh, Even though we're not going to go in great depths in these texts, I I want to give you several passages that I think are helpful. But as you think about it, remember in Romans 8, we studied this not too long ago. In Verses 23 and following in particular, we read that even we ourselves as Christians having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our what? Of our body. For in hope we have been saved. You remember in that text in Romans 8, it speaks about how God has has subjected all of his creation to futility. He has cursed his creation, which is always a reminder of sin and and the catastrophic consequences of sin. And you see how all of that is played out in the second law of thermodynamics, where we see that all matter and all energy is is is. Is, a, is subject to entropy. Everything is, is going downward, spiraling downward to degradation and disintegration and so on. But in the midst of all of that, he, he tells us how even though we're all longing, we're all groaning within ourselves for a future day, that we can do this with great hope because we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. So our redemption, dear friends, includes more than just the salvation of our souls or our spirits. The two words are used interchangeably throughout scripture, but also it includes our bodies. And we read in the Bible that this is going to occur when Jesus returns and raises our bodies from the dead. This theologically is called our glorification. That final stage in our process of redemption, when God fashions for us a new glorified body and reunites our soul with this new glorified body. Now, as we go to First Corinthians 15, which, by the way, is a dominant text in the Bible on this whole issue of the resurrection, And I'll just give you a few highlights here. We're going to see that that the Apostle Paul reminds us of the promise of this glorified body. For example, in verses twenty two and and twenty three, we read there. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. Underscore that also in Christ, all of us shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Now, what we have here is a harvest analogy. Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection harvest. And you might say that his resurrection guarantees ours. Likewise, we will be given a glorified body like unto his body. Think of it this way. Jesus' resurrected body was the prototype of our resurrected body. In verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15, we read, And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. In fact, 1 John 3 and verse 2 says that when he appears, we shall what? We shall be like him. Paul stated that Jesus will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. in Philippians 3.21 So, beloved, we will someday experience a supernatural metamorphosis, an instantaneous recreation. Now, I want to digress for a moment because this is very fascinating. I believe there will be actually three separate stages to the resurrection. As we read here in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, but each in his own order, and then he begins here, Christ, the first fruits. And then he says, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And there are other texts that I'll mention that may help you with this. Three stages. The first resurrection will consist of all who have believed in Christ from Pentecost to the rapture of the church. And this includes all of the saints who were alive at the rapture of the church. If the rapture of the church were to happen right now, it would include us. And so. The first resurrection will consist of everyone from Pentecost to the rapture. And, of course, this will be the end of the church age. For example, in 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17, we read that the dead in Christ shall rise first. Speaking of that great snatching away of the church, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52 The Apostle Paul tells us there, behold, I tell you a mystery. In other words, here's something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but is being revealed now. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, not everybody's going to die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So again, there would be a reference, another reference to this great resurrection moment in history at the rapture of the church. And so the first resurrection will consist of all who have loved Christ and have been have placed their faith in him between Pentecost and the rapture, Pentecost being the birth of the church. The second stage of resurrection will consist of those who were united to Christ in faith and who died during the tribulation along with the Old Testament saints. In other words, those that are in the tribulation, when that occurs... Those saints that die, as well as the Old Testament saints, will be the second stage of resurrection. You read about that in, in Daniel twelve two. You read about it in Isaiah uh, 26, uh, verses 19 and 20. You can read about it in, in uh, Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6 and so on. And then I believe there's also a third stage that will consist of those who die during the millennial reign of Christ. Um, and those people will, I believe... Receive their glorified body instantaneously. I believe various texts of scripture imply this. By the way on a tragic note. There is also a resurrection for all of those who die without without Christ. And here I want to say very soberly to those of you who may not know Christ as Savior. Those of you that have never placed your faith in Christ. What I'm about to say will be your eternal destiny unless you repent. Repent. The Apostle Paul tells us in Acts 24, verse 15, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. This will occur according to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, at the end of the millennial kingdom, at the great white throne judgment. And at that point, all of those people who have rejected Christ will be eternally suited for the torment that they must endure as they are cast into the lake of fire. Now, back to the issue of our glorified bodies in the resurrection in First Corinthians 15. What we see if we study this text is Paul contrasts the enormous differences and how God created various bodies for unique forms of existence and how the Holy Spirit then is going to give us a unique resurrected body suited for heaven. And in verses 42 through 44 Again, we, we read about uh, this, what's going to happen in the resurrection of the dead. Notice he says, it is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. In other words, with our new body, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more frailty. There will be no more death. He goes on to say it is sown in dishonor, but is, it is raised in glory. Now, think of this. In our resurrected body, it will be utterly free from the contaminating presence of sin. There will be no evidence on our bodies of of aging or disease. Um, we will have a a perpetual youthful uh, and, and mature appearance. It, it will bear the image of the glorified Christ. Uh, if if a child dies in infancy, when we see that child in heaven, it will be a mature glorified adult. And I believe that perhaps we will even shine. We will even have a light that emanates from us, that there will be a radiance that will emanate from our bodies, a supernatural glow. It's interesting, Paul says, that we're raised in glory. And we know throughout the New Testament, the term glory and even in the Old Testament was very often a reference to the Shekinah, that ineffable, dazzling, brilliant light of the glory of God that emanated from his body. Remember at the transfiguration, what did Christ do? He peeled back some of his flesh and the light shone forth and, and it absolutely terrified Peter, James and John. And so I think of the, the text in, in Matthew 13:43, where Jesus says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. I think of Daniel's vision in Daniel 12:3, where we read and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And I even think of uh, Exodus 34. Remember, when Moses came back down off of the mountain, that 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 his body, especially his face, continued to to glow, to emanate the Shekinah glory of God in whose whose presence he was just previously in. And so I, I believe that very well we could radiate that type of light back to first Corinthians 15, verse 43. It says that that we are sown in weakness, but our body is raised in power. In other words, in the glorified body, we won't have to deal with temptation anymore. Can you believe that? Sin will no longer be a factor, praise God. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. In other words, friends, we will no longer be shackled to the limits of time and space. We will be suited to. Uh, perfectly to worship and to serve God. What an amazing thought. Um, Often people will ask, well, will we be able to recognize one another when we're in heaven? Well, of course we will. Wouldn't that be terrible if you got up there and say, you know, excuse me, my my name is Dave. What's your name? Oh, you were with me. You were at Calvary. I I, you know, it's good to meet you. Of course it's not going to be that way. And scripture indicates that our resurrected bodies will have much of the same characteristics as our current body. You know, you see this. Uh, I've never seen it, but I've, I've seen the advertisements. I think it's called extreme makeover. I mean, folks, this is an extreme makeover here. This is a supernatural makeover. In Romans eight eleven. We read that he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. All right. He's going to give life to these mortal bodies also through his spirit, which dwells in you. And back to first Corinthians 15 and beginning in verse 37, we have, again, this farming analogy. He says that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. So in other words, he's saying there there is a vast difference between that which is sown versus that which comes forth from the ground. Nevertheless, there is continuity and similarity with respect to the matter of the seed and the plant that comes from the seed. And there, there too, this will happen with us. And beloved, again, think of this, our DNA seed will somehow blossom forth in the eternal perfection of divine holiness and glory. These old wrinkled bodies, uh, these arthritic bones, uh, will be gone forever. We won't need glasses. We won't need hearing aids. We won't need crutches. Um, You know what? As I think about it, we won't need toothbrushes. We won't even need toilets. There's no decay. I mean, it's going to be an incredible, incredible place. And again, with respect to recognition... You know, people recognized Christ after his glorified body, after he was resurrected. Now, it's interesting, by the way, they didn't at first. They had to kind of look at him. If you study the text, certainly before he died, he bore the results of aging. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You know what that's like? We're all at some level men and women of sorrows acquainted with grief. Nothing like the Savior, but look what it does to the body. And now all of a sudden, Jesus has this has all of his. His his glorified body, now it's restored to to eternal perfection, to glorious perfection. He's now in his full strength. By the way, it's interesting, too, in Luke 9, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John recognized Elijah and Moses. Do you think they had ever seen a picture of Elijah and Moses? Of course not. But they knew who he was. God gave them that wisdom at that moment. In fact, in Matthew 27, when Jesus died... We read that the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Well, obviously, this presupposes that people could recognize them. So, friends, this will be a glorious, glorious day when we will be able to come up to, to Noah or to Jonah or to any other saint in history and be able to speak with them as if we had known them all of our life. And they will recognize us as we will recognize them. By the way, folks, this makes all of the suffering of this life pale into insignificance, doesn't it? When you start thinking about this, don't you long for that day? Well, I do. And the older I get, the more I long for it. Isn't it interesting? In verse 19 of verse, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, boy, if, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, if we've hoped for all of this and it's just for this life and after this life, it's it. Boy, we we are real idiots here. We ought to be pitied. But that's not the case. And we rejoice in that. Well, I want to close with uh, um, the words of a hymn that 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 I discovered many years ago that that has always meant much to me. It was written by Henry Alford, one of of, uh, one of the greatest Greek professors in the history of the world. He was a professor of New Testament Greek at Cambridge University in England in 1867. Let me read you this wonderful hymn, the lyrics of this hymn that I believe can summarize so well this glorious concept of our resurrection. He says, Ten thousand times ten thousand, in sparkling raiment bright, the armies of the ransomed saints throng up the steeps of light. Tis finished, all is finished. Their fight with death and sin, fling open wide the golden gates and let the victors in. What rush of hallelujahs fills all the earth and sky? What ringing of a thousand harps bespeaks the triumph nigh? Oh, day for which creation and all its tribes were made! Oh, joy for all its former woes, a thousandfold repaid! Oh, then what raptured greetings on Canaan's happy shore, what knitting severed friendships up where partings are no more Then eyes with joy shall sparkle that brimmed with tears of late orphans no longer fatherless nor widows desolate. Bring near thy great salvation, thou lamb for sinners slain, fill up the role of thine elect. Then take thy power and reign. Appear desire of nations. Thine exiles long for home. Show in the heaven thy promised sign. Thou Prince and Savior come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the glorious truths of your word that stir our hearts with such joy. Lord, we thank you that we have been saved in hope. And Lord, I pray that those who do not share this hope will be profoundly convicted even this day. Lord, may they run to the foot of the cross. May they cry out for the mercy that You will so instantly grant because You will never cast anyone away. And Lord, may they too be raised with the just, with an imperishable body, rather than with the unjust, with a body that is imperishable, but one that is suited for eternal torment. Lord, we pray this with all of our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.